Hello, this is Deborah Meaden, probably best known for being an investor on Dragon's Den, but probably less known as someone who has long been concerned about human impact on the climate and the consequences of both human and wildlife on the planet. Indeed, over 40 years ago, my business studies thesis was on climate change, and I've been keeping a watchful and rather worried eye on it ever since. These climate conversations bring people together to share perspectives on a particular issue in climate change. This time, we look at how climate change is making our weather increasingly unpredictable and extreme. And I've got two excellent guests with me as our panellists. To get us started, would you like to both introduce yourselves? I'm um, Connie Klein, a meteorologist and climate researcher at the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology. And um, I'm really interested in the factors that produce intense rainfall over land and how that will change uh, with global warming. Uh, in the future. And um, there I'm really focusing on a very intense rainfall from large thunderstorm clusters. Um, such storms are quite common actually across the tropics and monsoon regions particularly, but we do also get them in the UK in spring and summer. And um, although they are not uh, as frequent here, let's say, when they occur, even in the UK, they usually produce quite extreme weather. Hi, hi, Deborah. So my name's Steve Trent, and I'm one of the co-founders and the current CEO of the Environmental Justice Foundation. And I've been working in the area of environmental security, wildlife conservation, and human rights for about 35 years now. And I'm I'm feeling my age, but I have a passionate interest in this, and I I, I feel about climate that we're still not gripping. The fundamentals of it, because if if I could be so bold as to say, failure on climate will bring failure everywhere. And what I want is success. I want us to achieve our goals and and to create a fairer, safer, um, more secure world. So that's that's my interest in life. And I think most of us have noticed a change in the weather patterns. That's you know whether it's in the changing patterns in the back garden being affected by some of the more frequent extreme weather incidents directly, or been watching with horror the wildfires, floods, hurricanes across the world. Personally, I am all of the above, but specifically I've seen firsthand the devastating effects of drought and flood in Africa through my work as a trustee for an African wildlife charity. So for me, an understanding of where we are, what we can expect, and I guess most important, what we can do to reduce the impacts of climate change are hugely important. So maybe first off, Connie, if I come to you, what is the difference between climate and weather and what is climate modelling? The difference between climate and weather is really the um, timescale we're looking at and how exact we are about the timing of an event. When we're talking about the weather, we're really uh, referring to -to day-to-day changes, whilst The climate describes conditions over decades to centuries, really. And that means that the climate represents, in the end, the statistics of the weather over long um, timescales. So, for example, it is uh, weather when we say that uh, the 3rd of October 2020 was a rainy day in London. Uh, Whilst from the climate perspective, we would say that, well, on average and looking over the last 30 years, we get about 14 rainy days in October in London. And that means that we can also use uh, climate information to put the day-to-day weather into context, 
So how common is a particular type of weather when we look back in time? So for, for instance, this uh, 3rd October 2020, I was just talking about, actually broke um, a record in rainfall that fell across the UK that hadn't been recorded since 1891. Uh, so it's really our climate record that tells us that the weather on that particular day, for instance, was highly unusual. Climate models are really, or they try to be an imitation of our planet. And they reflect the way that we uh, observe things in reality. And because they can do that, those models can help us to understand what happens to our climate, to the climate system, when we change certain parameters, such as increasing CO2 in the atmosphere, for example. And through that, those models give us an idea how the climate system would react in reality. See, I found that really interesting because I think it's quite difficult sometimes to get your mind wrapped around climate change because of the timescales. But of course, when you start seeing the weather, which we are currently seeing, we're seeing the impacts of that climate change. That's the moment people realise and really get in, involved with what's going on. So weather's kind of the way of delivering the message, I guess, about climate change. So, Steve, you founded the Environmental Justice Foundation. Could you tell us a bit about it? And of course, the impact that weather and the climate has on the people that you help. What we see, because we go out there and we work with local communities in, in countries across the world, documenting their, their problems, the challenges that they face, and then trying to articulate the, the solutions to them. And that can be in Glasgow at COP26, it can be with their national governments or regional bodies, but it's, it's basically taking the voices of the poorest and the most vulnerable and trying to take them to the centres of power around the world so they have a seat at the table and they are heard. But what I see filming these people in their, in their homes, and that can be in, on the coast of Bangladesh where I've seen homes washed away. I've seen livelihoods washed away, farms disappearing, nut trees gone, livestock swept out to sea, or it can be in some of the sub-Saharan African countries where we work, where you see what's called slow onset climate events, desertification, droughts, where, where things literally dry up over months or even years, and the, your ability to feed yourself or your family disappears over time. And I, I've, I've seen... Those, those people, those families, all too often, sadly, is, it's, it's the most vulnerable and often women and children that are on the real front line of this. Climate change has a human face. It's, it's someone I know, someone you know, and someone you care about. This is happening. It's with us now. So there's not a minute to be lost. We need to take the steps that we have within our power to roll back our, our heating planet and do the things that will ultimately, if I can say, benefit us all. It's not about just that person over there in Africa or Asia. It is about us in our homes here in safe, secure Western Europe and North America. So that's, that's been my experience of it. What are the main causes and the difficulties faced uh, by climate refugees when they're forced to leave their home? I mean, are we at the tip of an iceberg already or you know, what's going to happen if we don't do anything? It, it, we are at a tip of iceberg. And if, if, if I could just say, as I mentioned already, we've been doing this a long time, but I think if you scroll back through reasonably near history and see some of the things that have, that have um, occurred, it's really quite shocking. We just don't hear about them. So there was a hurricane called Hurricane Nargis that I think Connie might have heard of in, in the past that start, struck coastal Myanmar and Bangladesh in 2008. Now, when that hit, 
the government in Myanmar stopped counting the dead when they reached 138,000 people. Now, if you could imagine if that had been in Berlin or Brussels, London or New York, what kind of impact that would have had. But 138,000 people were dead. And then if you see, when we talk about whatever you want to call them, environmental migrants, forced migrants, climate refugees, call them what you will, but you see people who are forced from their homes because they're underwater, or as I said earlier, you know, the, the ability just to grow crops dries up. Where do they go? What rights do they have? Most want to stay in their country, in their communities, in their culture, in the landscape that they know and love. That's where they want to be. But sometimes even that isn't possible. And you're forced to move across borders. These, these horrible phrases that we use in my world, transboundary migrants. I mean, what does that mean? Well, all too often it means a mother and her children, maybe a partner or a husband, crossing into another country where they have no rights, no status, no job, no anything. And they're left without the ability to look after themselves. In the last year, something close to 30 million people were forced from their homes by extreme weather events. 30 million people. Last thing I would say, and, and I hope this message gets heard if nothing else does, is that action on environmental issues, on wildlife, on climate change is always presented as a cost. On the climate, it's not. It will be the biggest cost saving in human history. Investing in the bank of nature now will pay dividends like nobody has ever seen. This is not a Ponzi scheme. It will literally save our future. So my appeal is invest now, take the actions. We can, do, we can avoid the worst of this still, but we do need to take those steps. Oh, absolutely here, here. Do you know, sometimes I, I try to imagine what I would feel like if I was forced to leave my home and my family and my animals and my community. And then I think I cannot, I literally cannot imagine. Something else, Deborah, I mean, you, you mentioned animals. So I, I'm, I'm a dog owner. I'm an animal lover. Um, say, for example, some of the floods that, have, that happened recently and you see animals being washed away. This thing that we are doing to our planet is hurting everyone in some ways, but also everything. And actually, I think once you start to connect with that, it's quite an important emotional, intellectual and economic aspect to this. We, we need to look after though, 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 that wildlife, those natural systems, because the, at the final end of this all, they are the things that keep us alive. Uh, I, I absolutely agree with you. Connie, your work at the moment is specific to West Africa and you've seen the power of the storms where you are. But at what point do these extreme weather events directly affect us closer to home or are they already? I mean, it's a region with quite an extreme climate that somehow oscillates between quite extreme storms and then uh, drought periods in between. And so people have to live with that. And uh, my research now specifically focuses on those periods when we get extreme rainfalls, particularly in the in the Sahels, just south of the uh, Sahara. You get those storms during uh, the West African monsoon, and those storms are extremely frequent. They really create the West African monsoon. And those storms are some of the most explosive, most intense storms that we get on the planet. And so, so now that sounds quite scary, but actually it's those storms that people rely on at the same time for the rainfall, because as we heard, there is a lot of agriculture, or actually most of the agriculture is rain-fed. People need the water, but at the same time, those storms 
can partly be extreme, uh, threatening people, livestock um, and infrastructure as well. And uh, so that's why there is, of course, a very strong interest in better forecasting these storms. On the other hand, we're also using climate models for trying to understand how such storm behavior might change in the future. So in a sense, um, trying to predict certain storm characteristics decades ahead now. <laughs> but there are some things that we know for sure, for example, that those storms um, will be getting uh, more intense as the world is warming due to simply more water vapor that warm air can hold. And, and that will really increase with every fraction of a degree that the planet is warming. There will be more water that will rain out and will increase the intensity of those extreme events. How does this knowledge really help us? The, the hope is, of course, that with some knowledge on how uh, certain weather extremes are going to change under different scenarios in the future, we can better estimate future risks and um, that adaptation can be planned accordingly. So, for example, that may involve um, the planning of a dam for a hydropower project or uh, flood protection in cities. And these are structures that should stand their ground really for the next decades. And so this is really a long uh, learning process for everybody on all sides, I would say, to translate the theoretical knowledge that we have on everything um, into to translate that into practical and useful information that will help uh, people to better cope with uh, the weather extremes. Okay, so we've talked a lot about the world and what's going on around the world, but let's bring this home because actually most people really identify with what's going on with themselves, what's going on with their neighbours. How is the UK doing? How well equipped are we to deal with the consequences of climate change? I mean, when it comes to rainfall, uh, what I said about rainfall getting more intense is also true for, for our thunderstorms in the end and also for the low pressure systems that bring the big winter storms here, for example. And, and particularly the winter storms actually are projected to increase in number with uh, some confidence for the future. And so generally thinking about temperatures, those trends are already much clearer. So our 10 warmest years on, um, on a record back to 1884 have occurred since 2002. So now in, in 2019, for example, Cambridge broke the all-time UK temperature record with almost 39 degrees in July. And uh, so whether it is thinking about torrential rain or temperatures scratching the 40 degrees, every bit of warming really makes both more likely in the UK as well. As I mentioned earlier, you know, when, when so many people see it as over there and in the future, and I, I, my often repeated message is it's not, it's here with us now. And we can see in the UK the impacts of that. Um, when over the past few years, we've seen the floods in the Somerset levels. We've seen houses underwater. We've seen livestock washed away. We've seen damage and, and harm. You know, lives ruined because climate change is with us now. Well, I think if you look for the here and now, it's, it's pretty obvious for many different communities across the UK. These extreme weather events are costing them a lot, emotionally, financially and every other way. But if you look to the future, I'm a parent. I'm sure many people that will listen to this uh, have kids or want to have kids at some point. Think about them, because really this is the world they're going to inherit. We live here. We don't want to be forced to live our homes in the UK, whether it's within the UK or dare I say, even being forced to move abroad because of this. It's not inconceivable. It, that, that Those kind of movement patterns will happen if we don't take action today. So my appeal to you all is look after your future. And let's, let's do something about it right now.
Just so you know, I am actually on the edge of the Somerset levels. So no, I, I see it. You know, I think that's why I'm so interested in it. This is the thing. People have got to see it. They can't, you know, they can't imagine it. They've got to see the consequences. So I guess listening to all of this, I mean, it, it could be very depressing and very worrying. But I think I, I'd like to finish up with questions to both of you, really. Maybe Steve first. What gives you hope that we will be able to deal with these very obvious threats? There's several things. And I'll start with the small one. I was at the conference in Glasgow for climate, COP26, but I'm an old white guy in a bad suit. Um, most of the people there looked like me, sounded like me. But what we did is we took some of the local community activists that we work with from around the world, people from Bangladesh, from Papua New Guinea, from Uganda, and we took them there and we sponsored them. We got them into the conference. And those young people were inspiring. They give me hope. They were passionate, committed, engaged, intelligent, thoughtful, and they, they want to create their own better future. So they give me hope. I think one of the areas in our, on our planet that's so often ignored, and it's because we don't really see it every day, or most of us don't, is our ocean. And that's 70% of the Earth's surface. And it contains 70% of all animal biomass. It has this huge utility to it. And it gives us our every second breath. People think about the forests as being you know, the lungs of the Earth, but actually it's the ocean. That's the blue beating heart of our planet. And I'm now seeing more and more action being taken to protect both the wildlife in the ocean and the security of the ocean ecosystems. So I, my appeal to, to politicians, businesses, to all of us is, come on, let's get, let's get serious. Let's look at the benefits. There are jobs, livelihoods, income, economic benefits to be had from taking this action, as I said before. If we work together as a global community within our local communities, we can do it. We can roll back the worst of this. We can restore nature and use those nature-based solutions. So you have hope. I have hope. We have to have hope. Uh, <laughs> Connie, how do, you, how, do, how do you feel about this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would agree with many points that Steve just mentioned. I think just the um, evidently overall increased awareness of these issues of uh, climate change and, it, and its risks. And um, in that sense, I, I really hope that a, a critical mass has, has been reached somehow where it becomes impossible to not act through clear mitigation and adaptation strategies, um, which we saw again at, at COP26. Um, and but uh, yeah, I just wanted to say, thinking about African farmers in uh, rural areas, they too are more aware of what is at stake and they demand of the world uh, to not destroy their livelihoods and to help them adapt and all those things. And so uh, the same is true, I think, for so many other strongly affected and vulnerable communities and um, that they finally have a stronger voice on the world stage. I think that really uh, gives me some hope. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating for me because to listen to the whole thing, so starting from the science, which can at times feel blinding, and you have unpeeled it brilliantly for me. I understand, you know, I understand more today, a lot more today than I did before I started this conversation. But to follow that through to the actual human impact from you, Steve, you know, is has done the thing that I think is so often missing, which is the whole piece. You know, we often deal with these in bite-sized chunks and 
don't try and put the whole thing together. And that has been absolutely fascinating for me and hopefully fascinating for anybody else who's watching the podcast. So I can't thank you enough. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. And as I say, I know a lot more today than I have. I've got a lot more opinions now than I had yesterday. <laughs> so, so thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Huge thanks, of course, to Steve Trent and Dr. Cornelia Klein. My name's Deborah Meaden. It's been a pleasure to be part of this climate conversation. Other conversations in this series are about climate justice, how the Arctic is changing due to warming weather, and how finance can be made greener. You'll find them by searching Climate Conversations wherever you get your podcasts. The series is from Natural Environment Research Council and the Glasgow Science Centre. They're produced by Bespoken Media.